You're listening to Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's podcast about science fiction in various media. Next Friday, Neil Jordan's new film Byzantium opens in the UK, a new vampire movie that manages to be both epic in terms of a tale that spans generations and numerous locations, and intimate as it follows a pair of female vampires who are trying to eke out a relatively normal existence amongst humans in a small seaside town on the south coast. Following Jordan's earlier adaptation of Interview with a Vampire 20 years ago, this is one of the finest British vampire films to hit the big screen in years. And it was a great pleasure to be able to talk to producer Stephen Woolley, writer Mauro Buffini, and one of the stars, Daniel Mays, best known for his roles in time travel on TV, such as the series Ashes to Ashes and Doctor Who, on stage at the film's East London premiere at Sci-Fi London. Stephen, you know, it's funny, you mentioned Company of Wolves, Interview the Vampire, which were made, I believe, in 1984, 1994, and now we are in 2013. It feels like you skipped a decade. I, mean, I missed a decade, yeah. It's <laughs> a story of my life, really. Um, I don't know what I was doing in those 10 years. Um, but, yeah, I, I, no, I, I, obviously, I, I ran the Scarlet Cinema for a long time, in, mm. in the late 70s, um, and uh, through the 80s. And right up until uh, 92. And I, you know, it, it, these films that you're showing in festival were re- regular staples then. Mm. So the, the genre has always fascinated me and I've always felt it's a very underrated genre. It's now kind of exploded, it's like a mushroom now. Mm. And a lot of those old B movies that we showed are now films like Looper and, you know, they're now A movies. Absolutely. So it's, it's kind of, um, it, it's always been something I've, I've had so much fun and I released Evil Dead and Nightmare on Elm Street and a lot mm. of those films. So I've always loved the genre and especially fantasy and Cocteau mm. films, um, Orfe and the Dryer films like um, uh, his version, his uh, Vampire. Vampire. I've always, you know, I, I just think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a it's a fantastic way of making, you know, fairy stories. What we mm-hmm. love about films uh, is that when you go into another world, another in, into a fairy story. So I, I sort of don't know why I, did, I haven't really done those kind of films. Really, and mm-hmm. it's been and, and it was it was uh, wonderful to work more reveal on this. Mm-hmm. And we had such a great cast. I mean, Sersha and uh, Gemma. She was astonishing. Yeah, yeah. Gemma and Sersha were fantastic. Amazing. And one of the few times where you kind of put someone's name down mm-hmm. on. You know, when we made Mona Lisa, it was always going to be Sean Connery. That was always going to be Sean Connery, Sean Connery, and then we ended up with Bob Hoskins. Mm. And generally, that's what happens. You know, yeah, you yeah. kind of think, oh, well, we want this person, you know, and, and you end up with somebody else. But with this film, we lucked out. We, we only ever talked about Gemma and Sersha, didn't we? Yeah, and, and amazingly, they both yeah. wanted to do it. And we lucked out with Noel, because we only ever thought about <laughs> We only ever thought We did only ever think about Danny. We did. We only ever thought about Danny, yeah. I don't know how to take that, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, so we just, we, we have a fantastic cast in the movie, and it was, you know, it was, it was great to be able to get those cast. <laughs> Well, it's funny that you mentioned Vampire, because when I saw, um, I had a look at the credits before watching the movie, when I saw Johnny Lee Miller as Lord Reuven, um, I thought maybe he was going to be Polidori's vampire, completing like the hat-trick of Sherlock Holmes, Frankenstein, and like the original literary vampire. I mean, presumably, 
in thinking back on uh, the kind of myths that you're going to mix into this, you looked at all of the various yeah. versions of vampires that had appeared. Yeah, I mean, I, I read, I loved the, the little fragment by Lord Byron <coughs> called Augustus Darvell, ah. and the, the character that Sam plays is called Darvell, and then mm. Ruthven from the Polidori story, which, which was the first big best-selling vampire story, mm. um, you know, nicked everything, really. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, had you been much of a horror fan before making this? No. I mentioned Nightmare on Elm Street and <laughs> things like that, but not particularly, no. I mean, I've never appeared in a, this sort of genre of film before, so, um, mm. uh, yeah, I was just very pleased to be in it. But I suppose, again, it's kind of playing a down-to-earth part when the fantastical is not only taking place around your character, but your character's oblivious to it. It kind of even makes your story art more tragic. Well, that, I mean, that's the key. The yeah. key to that character is to play as, like any character, as three-dimensional and truthful as possible. But the more kind of morose and lonely and sad he was, you know, that, that was the key to him, really. It's a character who's way, way in over his head mm. and completely oblivious to what they're actually capable of. But... I mean, when I first read the script, it was always about trying to flesh these, these characters. I mean, it didn't really read to me as a vampire story as such. I know I'm coming at it from my point of view, but mm. I mean, I'm just reiterating what you said. You have to ground it in truth for it to then, particularly in the last act, you know. Yeah. Kind of and also, these, these are vampires who don't have special powers, mm. yeah. particularly. Yeah. You know, they can't move any faster than we can move, and they, they don't go all glittery in sunlight. <laughs> <Thank God. laughs> you, you know, I mean, they're just, they're very, very, life is a struggle. Mm. It is, mm. and we wanted to make life really difficult for, for all of the characters in the, in the story. Mm. Frank's mum, and, you, you know, characters that are just so everyday, and the teachers at the school. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that you get away with the, with the wild, fantastical mythology of it because it is so grounded in, mm. in what we know. Well, I, th I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why British horror has always worked so well, that it's the juxtaposition of the everyday and the fantastical that makes one even stranger. And I suppose that must be one of the hardest things when you're creating a new version of the vampire myth, what to keep, what to throw out, and actually what to add. You know, the whole uh, the growing fingernails was something I'd never seen before. Yeah, that and was obviously you kept the That was a Neil idea, okay. which is great. Neil's nails. If you ever see Interview with a Vampire, there's a kind of strange thing that Neil designed for Tom Cruise because he was very nervous that if you do the whole teeth thing, that you mm. just don't see anyone's eyes. And, you know, it, he, he came up with this little kind of weird attachment. Mm. And there's a couple of scenes in, in Interview with a Vampire where he used it. And so, he, through discussions with Murray, he said, Well, why don't we just have their nails grow rather mm. than go for the teeth thing or go for the knife thing. So, mm. yeah, that was kind of a, a great invention, I think. Mm. Um, and you kept the idea of them having to be invited into a place. Yes, like that idea. Wasn't keen on the coffins <laughs> or the, you know, daylight turning you into a pile of dust. Mm. But then if you go, again, if you go back to those really early Gothic vampire stories, um, you find that most of the modern inventions that we associate with vampires were made up by Bram Stoker almost mm. 100 years later. Mm. And the really vam early vampire stories, the vampires kind of lie around in bed in the morning, but <laughs> daylight doesn't kill them, and they, and they tend to sacrifice their victims with knives mm. rather than teeth, you know. Does anyone in the audience have any questions? Yeah, my accent will give a hint of the question that's going to be asked. The West Cork shoes and their bearer, 
out there. Um, the island with the cascading water, is that one of the skellies? Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, they're, no, no, they're the two island, different locations. That yeah. We were yeah. going to shoot on the skellies, but we actually couldn't get permission to shoot on the skellies because of the weather. The weather was so, as you know, if you're from yeah. there. And uh, that wasn't, the waterfall is quite near Castletown Bay. And, yeah, and the, uh, we actually built that hut, the beehive hut. Beehive thing. Yeah, and yeah. that was based on the same house as the Skelligs, but it's, it, and we turned up the, the waterfall in, that's actually, we did that. That's with, digital with digital. beetroot, yeah. No, we did it, we did it. No, we did it, yeah. I mean, it's all fine. No fish were yeah. disturbed. No, there was, there was a, the question I had was, because you're facing the Atlantic there, you huge breakers uh, coming in, huge yeah. breakers coming in. How do you, were you blessed with good weather with that bit of the shoot? Because it would be quite rough out there. We were really, really lucky. We were originally going to build our set facing the sea, but we actually turned it around when we found that waterfall. The waterfall saved our lives because, I mean, for the production. Because every time, if you built anything facing that, one night would take the whole thing down. As you know, it's one of the wildest places in the world. And we were very, very lucky with the weather. Very lucky. It was Jan end of January when we shot that film. Poor Gemma in that waterfall. That was the end of January. <laughs> and, yeah. Her head just froze. The water was so yeah. cold. She, she got brain ache, she said. <laughs> Yeah. Danny, you lucked out, you only had to go to Hastings. Yeah. <laughs> Still pretty cold. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, I'd just like to say, it's, it's a tremendous uh, film, it's incredible uh, uh, kind of reinvention of the, of the vampire myth. Uh, and you mentioned Dogs of Darkness, which is a, a favourite of mine, but I wonder, uh, Moira, it's, 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 it's basically an incredible script that uh, you've Thank you. He's, he's just saying if you can't hear what an incredible oh. set. <laughs> Favourite uh, vampire film yourself? You know, you've obviously seen a few Hammer films and... Uh... Well, yeah, no, I really like Daughters of Darkness and I love those old Christopher Lee ones. I love those Hammer films. When I was a child, I mean, like, I suppose a lot of us, when I was a child, I, I, I would not, I would not leave a lit room on my own. I was so terrified by Christopher Lee. I thought he'd just come in the toilet window and get me. Um, I really like those. And I did really like An Interview with a Vampire when it came out in the 90s. I, I remember going to see it with my, my mates and, and we were all most impressed and taken with it. I really liked Anne Rice's stories. Um, yeah, but um, Stephen then showed me Daughters of Darkness, which I thought was fab. I was going to say, because that's just that's something that you've done with this story, is the whole kind of huge history that Into the Vampire does, that not enough vampire movies do, when these people have the weight of centuries preying down upon them. You know, they must obviously, you know, reflect on their past. Well, yeah. I, I, so, sorry. No, I was going to say, what the fantastic <laughs> thing with more of what I did with the screenplay was, was and, and actually partially with the play as well, was weaving stories within stories. So if, when you're watching the film, the narration switches from Serge's character to Johnny Mirror's character, and then Jerry's character, Eleanor, and it, it's, it's, that's what I loved about the intricacy of the film. And we made it very difficult to cut, in fact, when we were looking at, at uh, Ed, when we were editing the film. Um, we, you know, we, we all thought, that's a little bit slow, maybe we can take something out, but you can't actually, it's quite difficult to take anything out, because every story kind of weaves into the next story. Yeah. And that was a little bit like Company of Wolves, the film that we made, or Angela Carter's short stories, where Angela Carter and Neil had 
have woven the stories together, so it's very hard to move anything. Um, and I think that's what the beauty of, of Moira's wonderful screenplay is, is that, it, that you're sort of telling the story on different levels and from different perspectives. Yeah, um, and I think, I think the this, this story asks the central question of how do you live with damage? How do you live with your past? Mm. So all of those stories are very, very pertinent to the, to the present of, of those two women's stories. And of course the other, the other central question of the film is what's it like spending 200 years with your mum? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> and she doesn't turn into a bratty teenager. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's one of the interesting, I guess, reasons for choosing Hastings, is that it's a place that everyone knows for something that happened a thousand years ago, and no one really knows anything about it now. So it has totally the burden of history. And then the whole kind of British seaside resort flavour of, not to put too hard a point on it, where old people go to die. You know? <laughs> yeah. I grew up in Worthing, give me a break. <laughs> Yeah, no, Landidno was very like that when I spent my teens, yeah. yeah. One review I read of this was uh, pointing out that the elevator was very similar to one in Blade Runner. Um, I don't know if that was a choice you made consciously, but I guess there is that whole kind of like neon lit, uh, you know, sort of uh, retrofitting of the past is perhaps one common element between the two films. Well, actually, you know, Neil was very keen on that lift. And it's the same elevator, the same kind of elevator we used in Mona Lisa, mm. weirdly. Um, there's a scene where Bob Hoskins is attacked in Mona Lisa. And I don't know why Neil's got a bloody obsession with those lifts. <laughs> um, because he loves those chained the doors. Mm. He just loved the whole kind of imprisonment of that. Uh, obviously, the same happened to him as a small child. But it's made him kind of re come back to that recurring thing. But um, that's kind of how the elevator came about. Yeah, because you called me and said, you've got to go down to Hastings, Neil has found a lift. Danny actually, amazingly, got, was so, uh, he put weight on for the character, he really, really worked so hard. Just, just putting, <laughs> no, he did put so much weight on, and there was one point, you know, the Morocco story, and where we're going to shoot the film, where we're going to shoot the film. And I actually had this, this terrible guilt complex about, shit, don't make this movie, Danny's brought that way. He's going to come out to my house and he's going to kill me. You better make the film just for Danny, otherwise we'll just be so pissed off. He really gave his agent would say to me, Danny's put all this weight on. You, 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 when are you starting the film? I, I yeah. He won't stop eating. <laughs> was that an enjoyable process? was rather, yes. <laughs> I remember I was on holiday in Cornwall and I got the call saying, yeah, yeah you got the part. So I, I ordered double cream teas and then uh, just carried on from there. <laughs> it was horrible, but um, right for the part, you know. It was kind of, it, it, was, it fitted it perfectly. It was a message from Neil through Susie Figgis, the casting director, so I couldn't really... Uh, you know, it's Neil Jordan, man. I've got to go for it, haven't I? <laughs> Any other questions? Speak up, Moira. Um, I wonder, having written your initial screenplay, did you have any issues with the idea of relinquishing control of the actual vision of the film? Well, if I kept control of the vision of the film, it never would have got made. So, you know, I mean, you know that these, these, these films are always such a collaboration. 
And I think I was really blessed, actually, with Neil and with Sean Bobbitt, our cinematographer. I think they have made it look fantastic. And I think that the, the soundtrack, all the elements, I think the collaboration really, really worked, and I'm, and I'm very lucky to have had it. You said two questions? Two questions, yeah. I recently shot a short film on a freezing cold post-apocalyptic beach in Portsmouth with an actress who was just freezing her bits off and only paid her a couple of quid and gave her some wine cups for her troubles. So I was wondering, how much time did you spend filming um, on that very beautiful cliff face and were you time limited? Was that time sensitive? Yeah, we only had three days in the West Island for all of that stuff. Um, uh, three days? No, about a week actually. Yeah, it's scheduled three days and it went on for about six, six days, I think. Um, so we, we were quite limited in the amount of time we had to shoot there. Um, but Gemma was, uh, Gemma was like superhuman. She, she was literally coming in and out of that sea. I mean, you know, as, as you saw, I mean, those small things, you imagine how cold it was. And she was immersing herself in the sea and then just nonchalantly walking out. I mean, the rest of us are all standing behind the camera wearing like 15 layers, <laughs> like, hats, and I mean, really, like two scarves each. It was crazy. If you've got to take her, her view of what she's seeing when she comes out of the sea, is uh, it's, it's like, you know, like just clothes, basically. It's, it's, yeah, it's the, and, uh, it's the North she, Face catalogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you, you, you know, when you have actors like that who are so dedicated and will just give you everything, then everything moves quickly because you're also, you're so indebted to, to what they've given you for the film. You don't want to muck it around. You know, it, somebody's in their trailer waiting two hours to say, ready now, ready now, ready now. And then like, you're thinking, Jesus Christ, you know, you put them in the seat four times or five times. Do you think, well, what's, what are they playing at? With Gemma, she was just an And I mean, the entire house, Johnny, Sam, you know, everyone, you know, Eddie, they're just there. Yeah, and when you do that, everything moves. Everything moves because there's such respect. Because well, no matter what we do, as you as director, producer, writers, we're all behind the camera. When it comes to tonight, you're not looking at any of us. Well, sadly, you are now. But you know, normally, you're looking at them. You're looking at the people in front of the camera. And they actually dictate a lot of what happens on the film. Because you know, if they are there, everyone is there with them. And it's one of those, those movies we make where you're really blessed because the, the cast are so, you know, so fantastically dedicated and devoted and, and do stuff that you're just astonished by. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that, we didn't have a lot of time to have a very long answer to your question in that location, but we shot so much footage and showed so much stuff that you would have, you know, really saved the life of the film. Mm -hmm. Thinking of the play originally being for young people, and it obviously being very much about the teenage experience of feeling that you have the weight of the world on you and, you know, there's feelings of isolation. Did that also mean when it came to cutting the final version, you were careful not to make it an 18 so that you didn't lose half the target audience? I, yeah. I, was, I was very keen that its audience was teenagers. Um, hmm. You have to do a lot to get an 18 these days. <laughs> um, uh, I, I mean, films that I watched in the early 70s when I was, was, wasn't 18, things like Clockwork Orange, which I had to bunk into because I was too young to see it. And now we'll probably only get a 15 anyway. So my, the, the, the whole, I, I mean, I'm really, sorry to be, sound so prudish and moral but God knows what you have to do to get an 18. Um, there was, we, were talking, we always thought it, should, it would be a 15. Mm. Um, and we, we, the only point 
they, they be heavy at the beginning. There was a question as to whether that should be trimmed or cut. And um, in the end, they, they, they allowed it through. And when we looked at other films, actually, we did point out quite a few other films where, mm. it, you know, the characters in the film are, are fantastical. Mm. And as such, you know, through the course of the film, the bad guy's actually been around for quite a long time. It's mm. not, it, it, it's, it's the, the, the human deaths are more worrying. Mm. Um, but, you know, these, it, it isn't, it's difficult to get an 18, but the, the target audience for, well, not target audience, but people that sort of appreciate the movie would definitely be in that teenage area. Mm. And how do you wean teenagers off crappy Batman movies where people sparkle onto a film like this? <laughs> I, I, really, I really have no idea. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I just hope they come along. And I, I mean, this, you, you know, I just hope they come along. Um, yeah, vam vampires are, are better when they're more like us. <laughs> Any more questions? Right at the back. What made you want to have vampires with such limited abilities? What made you um, make the vampires have such limited abilities? Well, I think it makes... I, I don't know. I like the idea of them find, having... I, I like the idea of everything being very difficult for them. Like, that you can't just go to the hospital and get a bag of blood. You have to actually kill a person. Or that you... You can't, you know, leap into the woods and kill a deer. You, you, you know, you, you actually have to. You, you know, you know that you're faced with your the, the difficult moral dilemmas that a that a that a, that a vampire must face. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know. I I really did want to make them sort of sort of much more like us, much more flawed and human, mm. actually. You know, and much less romantic. Mm. Um, yeah. And at the same time, actually, I guess the humans, in comparison, all the humans in the movie are slightly pathetic through their innocence or their naivety or their being corrupted by vice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then the vampires are no gods. I mean, I think this is that's the funny thing about the Twilight um, mm. franchise, um, and I and I've really got nothing against the the. the Twilight films, for, for what they are, they're kind of mm. quite nice rom romances. Mm. Um, I'd go up after 20 minutes. Well, you know, I'm trying to be generous here. Um, <laughs> oh, I forget what I was going to say. I just got that image of Robert Pattinson in my head. Just like, no, he, he's with my agent. Oh, okay. I'm sure he's, no, he is lovely. He's wonderful. He, he was good in that Simon and Darby movie. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I just liked the idea of people who would make hopeless vampires being mm. vampires, mm. Um, you know. But no desire to make uh, human characters a little bit more heroic, you know, no demands from the cast. No, <laughs> no. no. I think there's a heroic quality to Noel, yes. you know, I think, yes. you know, we could all agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't think it's really disturbing... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Then I suppose it's a, it's, I think what it is is a really disturbing fairy tale ending. <laughs> and given that though, all those gothic vampire stories are kind of weird adult fairy tales, I think the ending's really disturbing. Um, if you found it happy, that's nice. <laughs> 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 You've got time for one more? Yeah. 
Um, how has it been um, distributing the movie and getting it out there, and what are the possibilities for a UK fantasy horror film um, to, to be seen around the world? Um, the film's being released in America, I think, in, in a couple of months, uh, June, July, um, and uh, it will be released across Europe through the rest of the year. So, um, hopefully, we have a very good distributor, Studio Canal, who've released films like Pan's Labyrinth, and, and you know, have a fantastic track record of releasing fantasy horror films, and, and rather than just uh, gore movies. So. You know what chances? Are. I don't know. I mean, you know, Company Wars when we released that, people said it was was not going to be a successful film, and it was uh, hugely successful. But having said that, you know, the, the, that was 30 years ago. The marketplace has changed hugely since then, and, and every film, you know, is 13 or 14 films released a week. So um, obviously, a film like this is in an area of. You know, some people can love it because it's kind of like an arty horror film, and, and some people can hate it because it's too much like an art film and not enough like a horror film. I mean, it is. You know, films are very. It's 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 a, it's always a gamble. I mean, I'm hoping that people will take to it, and um, it's great. Your response tonight has been wonderful, and we've had a really great response so far. And there's a lovely review in Empire Magazine by Kim Newman, who is, of course, kind of doyen of these kind of films. Um, and we, you know, we've been getting some really. Um, Really, really great reviews. So, you know, but it's it's too early to know yet. We released on the 31st of May, so there's quite a lot going for it, for the film. But at the same time, you know, it is a, it is um, it's, a, it's a tough marketplace for for films at the moment. And this movie we deliberately made, and, and Maura mentioned Sean, our DP, who also did a film called Place Beyond the Pines, which also was fantastic. Um, Sean did an amazing job making, giving the film a cinematic feel so that you enjoy it in the cinema. And that's why those flashbacks are so important. That's why those locations were, were really important. And as as um, you said earlier, the west coast of Ireland is uh, not filmed that often because it's so bloody difficult to film. But we wanted to make the film, give it a, a bit of a grandeur and a bit of a size. So, um, you know, hopefully it's a cinematic experience um, as opposed to something that you'll just look at on your iPad. Um, so, you know, there is old people like me still trying to make films for the cinema and, ho and hopefully people will still want to go and sit to the cinema to see this. Um, and if you can help by the, telling them, don't ask them, to tell them to go, that would be great. Well, I, I thought it was amazing, fingers crossed that it finds its audience. I just feel slightly sorry for Caleb that after this and antiviral, I feel he's going to get typecast as slightly sickly, creepy individuals for the rest of his career. <laughs> um, I'd like to thank Danny, Moira, and Stephen. Byzantium goes on wide release in the UK next Friday the 31st of May, and is well worth a watch. Fans of unusual and alternative narratives in science fiction might like to come along to the Science Museum next Wednesday, where their Lates event this month is all about sexuality in science and science fiction. I'll be giving a talk about representations of lesbian and gay characters in sci-fi, and there'll be various events taking place throughout the night including a silent disco and a speed dating event. 
Science Museum Leitz opens at 6.45 on Wednesday the 29th of May and you can find out more information about Science Museum Leitz by going to www.sciencemuseum.org.uk stroke visit museum stroke events. If you don't want to take my word for it, you can find out just how great Byzantium is by visiting electricsheepmagazine.co.uk where there's a review of the film alongside a forthcoming roundup of a variety of other movies that screened at this year's Sci-Fi London, including the likes of Stress Position and The Search for Simon. Reality Check was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find all previous episodes at sci-fi-london.com stroke podcast. Thanks for listening.